0: So everything in the Gospel story builds up to this very moment. Ever since Jesus came on the scene, He has been announcing the arrival of God's kingdom. And in various ways, He's been enacting the arrival of God's kingdom by confronting demonic powers, healing lepers, giving sight to the blind, doing all these things as if He is restoring the world to the way it's meant to be. In veiled ways, up until now, Jesus has indicated that he is the world's true king, that he's the one in whom all God's promises are coming about, but they've all been veiled. In the passage this morning, what's been veiled becomes public. Jesus enters into Jerusalem in kingly fashion. Now what I want to do this morning is walk through Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 25, just teasing out some of the meaning that is so easy to miss in this story. I want us to listen to the story again, and then at the end of the sermon, we're going to come back, and we're going to stand in front of this story, and we're going to look out, look in on our lives, look out on the world, and then ask, what does this story mean for us and for our world? So to start, uh, up until now, Jesus has always walked places, right? When Jesus wasn't walking, he was in a boat, but he's never been on a donkey or a horse or anything like that to travel in the way that many kings would. But this time, he commandeers a young donkey, and Mark has even slowed down his story. You know the way that a director might put a scene in a movie in slow motion to force the audience to watch closely and to reflect on what this means? That's what Mark has done in this story. He's pieced together details of geography, this tied-up cult, and Jesus' arrival at the temple as a way of squeezing meaning from the scene. So in this day and age, Jesus' is riding on a donkey over the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, and up to the Temple Mount, spoke more powerfully than words could have of a royal claim. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem for His enthronement ceremony to be crowned as the world's true and only king. So we heard from the prophet Zechariah, which Glenn read to us, that the Lord's king would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and that on this day the Lord would be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and His name will be one. So in this dramatic fashion, Jesus is making the claim... For a transition in power. It's not as if the throne that Jesus is going to take is empty. It's occupied. The ruler of Rome is said that he is the savior of the entire world. The ruler over the entire world. And yet Jesus rides in. In a very subversive way and says. I am the world's true king. Now I realize that whether a donkey is tied up or not. Doesn't seem like an important detail in the story of the Bible. I realize that's not what you come here to learn about, as whether a horse is tied or untied, that sort of thing. But we hear five different times about this colt being tied and untied. If you want to look closely at Mark chapter 11, the first few verses, when, when Jesus sends his disciples to retrieve this colt, we are told five times that it is either tied or untied. And it just so happens that in the book of Genesis, when Jacob, the patriarch of Israel, blesses his children. He says that a king will come from his son Judah's line and that his donkey will be tied. Now Jesus happens to come from the tribe of Judah. And so what Mark is doing is he's tying together the story of Scripture and he's intensifying the moment so that we might feel the weight of it. Now, I can just hear some of you fathers blessing your children one day. Matt saying to Matthew, Son, your donkey will be tied. Right? (laughs) With pride in his voice. No, Mark is helping us understand how what Jesus is doing fits in with the whole story of Scripture. Jesus is claiming His right as the world's true king. He's claiming this moment as a turning point in history. Now the disciples take off some of their clothes. They make an improvised saddle for Jesus to ride in on. And the people spread their clothes and branches along the road. And they bless him as he comes into town. Then Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. And where does he go? He goes to the temple. So in the way that a president in the United States is inaugurated into the presidency at the Capitol building. A king in Israel was enthroned at the temple. This is where a king would go to be enthroned as king. This is the center of Israel's political, cultural, and religious life. But here's what's strange about what happens in the story Jesus arrives at the temple for his enthronement, and nothing happens, there's silence. It even seems like all those pilgrims who were chanting as Jesus came into town have all of a sudden dispersed. The only thing that we're told is that Jesus walks around the temple, it's already late, and so he looks at everything and leaves. So if you can imagine Jesus there, here he is, Israel's king, the king of creation. He's unrecognized. And the crowds have completely dispersed. But he walks around. Uh, The word that we're given for Jesus looking at everything has the sense of inspecting everything. Can you imagine what the eyes of Jesus must have been like? When he looked at a person or at a thing, there was no detail that was missed. So picture Jesus here. He's taking in everything with this penetrating gaze. Everything in the temple. Then we have a transition to a new scene. The next day, Jesus is walking along from Bethany. They would stay in the evenings in Bethany and go back to Jerusalem during the day. So they're walking back to Jerusalem. Jesus is hungry. He sees a fig tree and notices from a distance that the fig tree has leaves. But then he gets closer and there are are no figs on the tree. So then Jesus curses the tree and says, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Again, this scene is so odd that it's shocking for us. Why would Jesus do this? Especially since Mark is clear to tell us that it wasn't even the season for figs. Why would Jesus do this? Well, when we keep reading, we realize that the fig tree isn't actually the main point to what Jesus is doing here. The fig tree is a picture lesson. Uh, Mark especially uses this technique very often. It's called sandwiching, where he talks about one thing, then switches topics, and then he goes back to the thing before. And so you've got the bread on both sides. That's one issue. But then the meat in the middle is the real issue that the bread is trying to teach us about. Is anybody getting hungry right now? Yeah. So there's the cursing of the fig tree. Then there's Jesus' cursing of the temple that comes immediately after And then Jesus and his disciples see the fig tree again. And his disciples say, look, the fig tree is withered away to its roots. So the fig tree serves to help us understand what Jesus is doing in the temple. But even if that is the case, what is so terribly wrong with the temple that Jesus has to destroy a fig tree? Just to prove how unique this is, this is the only destructive miracle Jesus does in the Gospels. The only destructive miracle. All His other miracles, every single one, is life-giving, it's healing, rescuing, restoring. But here, we have a first-time occurrence. Jesus destroys. Even as I say it, those two words together, Jesus destroys, are like an oxymoron when I say them together. Why would Jesus destroy? What is so wrong with the temple? Well, the temple was God's special gift to Israel. His presence localized among them so that they might draw in the nations and bless them. The temple was supposed to be like a fruitful tree that would nourish Israel and the nations. Israel did not receive God's blessing for themselves alone. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. But you get the sense that Israel has started using the temple as a way of keeping people out rather than bringing people in. And Jesus even says, the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. What does Jesus mean here? Truthfully, I think it's a little bit hard to know exactly what Jesus means. I think there are multiple things that he means. Jesus interferes with all the buying and selling of sacrificial animals, right? If you look closely, the thing that Jesus does is he stops all the traders who are helping people get sacrifices to go into the temple and offer their sacrifices to get peace with God. Here's the thing. Those sacrifices were a necessary part of the temple work, the temple's action from day to day. The sacrifices are not inherently bad. That's not the problem. Here's the problem. There is no easier place to abuse people than when people are seeking God. When they're trying to discover peace with God. And those who control the buying and selling can easily fix prices in a way that overly benefits them and oppresses others. So, in this sense, Jesus could be saying that they are robbers. And this is the business that Jesus is trying to thwart. But there's another issue the area where they're doing this buying and selling is called the Gentiles' court. So, the Gentiles' court of the temple was the area where anyone could come to pray. You did not have to be an Orthodox Jewish person to come to pray in this part of the temple. But they've pushed them out, they've made this the place where they buy and sell sacrifices as an excuse to keep the Gentiles away from their temple. You know the word robber that Jesus uses. You've made it a den or a cave of robbers. This word also has the meaning of rebel or insurrectionist. In other words, what Jesus could be saying is that the temple has become a cave for nationalist fervor. Where those who want to restore Israel's pride and glory gather up and they stoke the flames for revolution. And by doing this, they make the temple an unwelcome place for anyone who is not Jewish. I actually think that both of these options are likely. Jesus judges the temple because it's been co-opted as a place for material gain and political power. Its purpose of being a light and blessing to the nations has been completely betrayed. So, just like the fig tree, the temple is all leaves but no fruit. Or, as a Texan would say, I love this saying about someone who tries to be a cowboy but really isn't all hat but no cattle. That's what the temple is right now. Now, the scene changes one more time when Jesus and his disciples go back and they see the fig tree again. It's withered away to its roots. And Jesus uses it as a lesson in faith and prayer. He tells them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, we love this sort of saying about prayer. If I believe, Jesus is going to give it to me. But there is something important to notice here. When Jesus says this, remember that the temple is located on a mountain. It's called the Temple Mount. And the sea in the Bible is nearly always representative of foreign powers. Gentile, worldly powers. And in A.D. 70, about 40 years after this moment, the temple itself is going to be swallowed up by the sea of the Romans. The Gentiles are going to come into Jerusalem and they're going to tear down the temple. It will be destroyed all the way down to its roots just like that fig tree was. So Jesus is right here is talking about a type of prayer in which His disciples are to go out into the world and pray against forces of evil thwart the purposes of God. This is a specific type of prayer. It's a dangerous type of prayer. It's the kind of prayer where we're called to go out into the world and work against forces of darkness that bring oppression to people and that suffocate out the life that God desires for His creation. So now, having looked at this story in this light... I want us to stand in front of this the vision of this passage and with it I want us to look in at our lives and look out at our world. How does this story flesh itself out in our lives and in our world? First, Jesus is king. We just need to say this and we need to think about what this means in our lives. Jesus is king. Remember that when Jesus arrives at the temple and looks around, He's inspecting it. He's determining whether the temple bears fruit. This is the same thing that Jesus does in our own lives. The same thing. Jesus is the King. He roams freely throughout His creation. So He looks in on our lives and He inspects us to see whether we are bearing fruit. So what does Jesus see when He looks in on your life? Are you bearing fruit? Are you obeying Jesus? Now, remember too that Jesus is not recognized as king at the temple. The temple is supposed to be the location of God's presence on earth. The place where heaven and earth overlap, interlock. But He's not even recognized in this place where of all places He should be recognized. You, now, you and me, we are intended to be God's temple. The locus of His presence on earth. So when God looks in on your life, is it clear that He is your King? Is He recognized clearly by you as ruling your life? Let me ask it this way. Have you entirely surrendered allegiance to him or do you still try to negotiate terms with him this is one of those passages that reminds us that Jesus is not into the business of negotiation Jesus doesn't negotiate terms he has de facto power and authority and those things that do not bear good fruit Jesus judges so if you're not obeying Jesus will you repent Jesus is looking in on you. He's looking in on me. But, He is not bent on judgment toward us. Jesus' desire, His intent, is to forgive. Even at the end of this passage, what does Jesus tell His disciples? But, when you're praying, forgive. Right after judging this temple, Jesus says, forgive. You see, His desire is not to have Uh, bitterness, anger toward us. But Jesus must judge those things and those people that do not bear fruit and give life to the world. Is He your King? Does He rule your life? Are you obeying Him? And if not, will you repent? Will you turn and receive His forgiveness? Second, The church is the new temple. So the temple was supposed to be a light for the nations. The place where heaven and earth overlap interlock. And Israel was supposed to live in such a way that the temple became this centripetal force. Drawing the nations in to experience God's blessing. Israel was to be this place of peace that was so wonderful. That all the nations would want to come there and experience the blessings of God. But Israel was judged because it had been co-opted for material and political gain. Now Jesus has replaced the temple with the church, with us. We are His Spirit-filled body which declares Jesus as King of the creation of all the world and labors for His kingdom here and now. Now look, before I say what I'm about to say, I know that religion and politics aren't supposed to mingle, and truthfully, I wish they didn't so that I didn't have to say this. The problem is Israel didn't get this memo about religion and politics not mingling. And truth, again, it's absolutely impossible to entirely disentangle these things. Here is what the church has to do. Our primary political claim has to be this. Jesus is the world's true and only king. This is the church's primary political claim. Jesus is king over all that is made. Over all the world. And this should not be an escapism. What does it mean? It means the church should not be co-opted by politics. Here's where I think this becomes extremely practical if you listen to or read the news cycle more than you read scripture and pray you are probably being co-opted the reason for that is you are being shaped by a false narrative you're being shaped by the politics of the world and not the politics of god's kingdom The story that we must be primarily shaped by is the story of God's kingdom that is breaking into this world. And when we primarily engage in the news cycle, we're twisted. And what's worse, in a clever way, the news cycle is able to turn us against each other. What more could the evil one ask for than simply to get us to listen to news And then we begin to falsely categorize each other as one thing or the other instead of brother or sister in Christ. We must prioritize politics of the kingdom over politics of the world. Now Jesus' judgment on the temple signals very strongly that the church should be a place that reaches out to the world in love. So Jesus is concerned that churches in Elkton and East Rockingham fulfill their purpose by declaring Him as King and working to make this place better for all people. This is the job of the church. The reason Jesus judges the temple is because it's not doing this. And so, the implication is, if the church does not fulfill its calling to labor to make it a better place for all people, then Jesus will judge the church for not living into its vocation. Now, historically, the church has always been able to outflank the politics of the world by living by these politics of the kingdom. This is what the early church did when it was, it was a minority population. And yet, by serving and loving all people, it outflanked the politics of the world and all of a sudden found itself as a majority in the Roman Empire. How do we, as the church, overcome in such a fractured environment where people seem to be at each other's throats politically on just about anything? We live by the politics of the kingdom, we love each other as servants of King Jesus and we labor together for the sake of God's kingdom, for the good of all people. So the church is the new temple. And as the new temple, it has a vocation to seek the good of the community in which we are embedded. Now, lastly, all our action must be empowered by prayer. All of our action must be empowered by prayer. So we should be clear, if we follow Jesus, we're called on to labor in His name to bless others. This this should be accepted and understood. I am assuming that we agree on this. And when we try to do this, we will over and over again come up against forces of evil that are stronger than us. Look, this is what Jesus encountered with the temple. His action in this moment is going to lead quickly to His arrest and His death. Did you hear what the passage says after Jesus cleanses the temple? It says they sought to destroy Him. Thankfully, Jesus is stronger than these powers of evil and He will overcome them. And the same is true for our lives when we come up against forces of evil. He will strengthen us to deal with them. Now, the temple itself, the money, the political power, these things had become idols for the Jews. They no longer truly worshipped God. Here are two facts about idols, any false god. Take your pick. One is that we usually don't know that we have an idol. Whatever our idol is, we don't know it. Because if we knew it was there, we would probably try to do something about it. So we're usually blind to whatever idol we have. Two, when someone touches our idol, we become angry and even violent. When someone touches an idol of ours, we're prone to become angry and even violent. Think about the things that cause you anger. Look, I can quickly think of occasions when I felt attacked or accused, and I literally start to feel something boiling up in me. And it's not a sense of injustice. That's not it. It's this idol of pride that begins to sneak up its head. I feel my pride being just hit. What is it that people can touch and it makes you angry? Jesus has called us to confront idols, forces of darkness within us, each other, and our community. What are the idols of Elkton and East Rockingham? The things that suffocate life. And how do we confront these idols when we know that it will often mean some sort of battle? Jesus tells us that we are to take courageous action in faith and in prayer. We pray against darkness. We work against it in any way we can. And we trust God. So what are the forces of darkness you encounter in your own work? What are the forces of darkness in your own home? The idols in your own life? And as we pray, we guard our hearts from bitterness. So the last thing Jesus says here is that whenever you pray, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that the Father might forgive you. This is amazing, isn't it? Even after Jesus has cleansed the temple, his heart is still bent toward forgiveness and love. This is Jesus' most natural reflex and desire to forgive. And it should be ours too. We cannot truly pray and we cannot truly carry out God's work if our heart is bitter, if our heart is filled with anger. So, Jesus is the world's true king. I'll ask one more time is he your king? If he's not, will you repent? He's still willing to forgive you, but you don't know how long you can go on in the way you're going. Will you repent? The church is the new temple. Are we fulfilling our calling and our vocation to bless the world? More specifically, are we fulfilling our vocation to bless our community, to bless all people? To do this, we must pray. We must have faith that Jesus will be with us, that He is stronger than whatever forces of evil we will come against. And we must be bent on forgiveness. Because as we go out into the world to bless others, we will encounter forces that will sin against us. And yet we must be quick to forgive and to love. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.